Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rabbit Trails. I'm Joel Meyer, going to be joined on today's episode by my friend Robert and have a tacked on at the end dissertation by another friend, Brian Cooper. We are going to give you an outline of where we hope this podcast is going to go in today's episode, as well as a little background for myself and Robert, and then talk about the mythology of the Bible and how we view the enlightenment pushing us different places and the assumptions we make in our thoughts. Hope you guys enjoy. Here we go. All right. Hey, man, how you doing? Glad yeah? to be <laughs> Glad to be a part of whatever this is about to be, you know? Yeah. So it's going to be a real mystery. With a professional microphone and everything. Yeah, where Amazon is a wonderful place. You just get whatever you want. <laughs> Poison tree frogs. Oh, not wrong Amazon. Anyways, <laughs> uh, yeah, so what we're... I think how we're going to start this whole mess that we're going to talk about is a uh, little personal backgrounds for ourselves and then sort of why we want to even talk about these things and why we think we have a leg to stand on for some of the stuff we're saying. Word. Makes sense. Okay. So I think for me, a lot of the reason I want to do this and, and go through these thoughts is uh, I've had a very tenuous relationship with religion and church through my life personally, but probably on the outside, it doesn't seem that way. I grew up in a church pastor's kid, part of a family that was very, very well connected within church movements. But I have also, to put it this way, worked with a lot of servers, a lot of very, uh, very close to people that are on the other end of that, that haven't been involved with church, that have been in a lot of ways better people than the people I went to church with. And so it's always been this, this tug and pull between, there have been several times in my life, God has pulled the curtain back of my reality and said, I am here, I am real, what are you going to do about it? And I have seen several people in my life have that same interaction and responded to things in ways that they could not have done on their own. But I've also seen people just kind of play at that fact for their whole lives. And I've seen other people that don't know God play at a lot of the concepts that you would have to believe if God was real. Hmm. And so it's sort of been this, this journey for me between if God is real, and I know he is, then why are the people and the constructs and the structures that we have that are supposed to put us in contact with him, not only not doing that, but often pushing us past or away from that living God. And then if in religious sense, even the rocks will cry out, what part of culture is the rocks crying out where they're getting it closer than we are as the church? Yeah. So as a, as a modern function deconstruction, I sort of see it as two groups coming in where um, the first group is those that are really just thumbing their nose at God and don't want anything to do with him. But the second group, which I think unfairly gets lumped in with the first group, is people who truly are seeking God and have not found him in the places they are supposed to. And so what choice do they have other than to leave and go off into the wilderness and see what's there? Yeah. I think there's a lot of those. Yeah. And so that's, that's why I want to talk about these things. That's why I want to try to give a voice to those people in my life and to myself, honestly, who have left church behind in a lot of real ways while trying to find something real. And that would put me in contact with the real and living God when I didn't find it within the structures and all the other things I found. So what about you? What's, yeah. what's important to you about this? What's your background kind of? Well, I'm glad that we are approaching this from um, very different points of goal, I guess. <laughs> no, yeah. um, I had a conversation with a friend recently where we talked about 
what are we aiming for as disciples? And it made me realize that as I've been in this deconstruction vein for uh, years, that like deconstruction has taught me what to aim away from, but not necessarily what to aim towards or aim for. So I want to have these conversations to kind of narrow in on as we talk about what we're, what we don't want and what church shouldn't be and what corrupts traditions. um, What then do we go after? What does it look like to follow Jesus in a world where, yeah, it doesn't feel like the church is a flourishing spiritual home. Like, and so my background wise, like I have not always been a follower of Jesus or a Christian uh, be was evangelized or whatever in college and got involved at a non-denominational evangelical church, spent 12 years there, and it kind of went down in flames. And the recovery from that has been kind of analyzing like, okay, what what did I really take in from this non-denominational evangelical tradition? And that's been really good to kind of analyze and pick up like what are the good threads and trying to leave behind the the many bad. And yeah, I, I go to a church now that's fine. Like it, it is a healthy church. It checks the important boxes. But to what I was saying about like a flourishing home, like it, it doesn't feel like that. And it doesn't feel, given my experience, that that exists. So I want to kind of tap into like what could that be? What does it take to get there? And then even like basic questions like, what is church? What does it mean to follow Jesus? I think are deceptively complex questions um, that we'll probably return to a bunch. <laughs> so yeah, I'm absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This is not going to be a straight line by any means, nor will it be a, a doctoral level thesis on anything. It's going to sort of be thoughts, comments, <laughs> ideas, totally being willing to know that we're wrong, um, being willing to contradict ourselves at some points, because as much as anything, we're wrestling through these questions as we're talking about them. And, and this we're is more a platform experts. to right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a associates of fine arts degree. That's my only college level education, right? Like don't have a philosophy background other than what I've gone into personally. I don't have a, a theology background other than what I've researched and experienced and on my PhD. own. I have a PhD in thinking a lot. Yeah. But yeah. That I mean, have a I, paper that says that. <laughs> correct. Yeah. I've got several thousand hours into these topics and, and have changed my mind on several of the points many times and returned to some thoughts and, and have, you know, completely turned my back on other parts of it. So in no way is this meant to be like someone can reference this show and be like, Hey, these two dudes said this, I believe them. Like that's not what this is meant to do, right? Like we ought to also be talking about aliens and conspiracy (laughs) theory. So So all that to say, this is going to be wide ranging. We're not experts. We're, We're trying to process what we view as a very important question. And we sort of hope people will come along for the ride. Yeah. That makes sense. 
Yeah. I think, um, I think that's as straightforward of a way to say it as possible. Yeah. So, um, yeah. What, what's the topic of the day for you? Uh, well, I sort of wanted to go through deconstruction in general, a little bit of telos about the church. Um, but I, I think the overarching structure that I'm super excited about that we had kind of mentioned is something we wanted to talk about was, uh, the Bible is mythology. Hmm. Yeah. So I think we're going to kind of start with telos, right? I wanted to have a, a different friend kind of give their view of the telos of the modern culture. Telos is just sort of a, a chief aim or goal um, of an individual or a group. So just sort of where do we see the church going in general today and what's its goal? Well, and I like I've... that you said telos of the modern culture too, like where alongside that parallel or intersecting is culture going. Yeah, it's it's uh, so it's a Francis Schaeffer thing to believe that culture has degraded the church. And I sort of disagree with that. I sort of view the church as the one degrading culture because it is the church's job to be salt and light, which are preservative and expository. But can a church that doesn't have a lot of cultural capital contribute to its degradation, de- degradation of culture? Uh, well, it should have cultural capital, right? Which is part of the problem. (laughs) So, I mean, that's the, so one of the other concepts I want to get out in the front is um, anytime I talk about these things with people, I'll say, you know, this is sort of what I view as going on in the mainstream. And they go, well, that's not like that at my church. So that's not true. And so we got to be very careful of either not denying something is happening because it's either happening on a small scale, then we can see it or looking at the overarching culture and going, well, this is happening everywhere because this is usually what's happening. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's a tough line to draw when we're talking about predominantly the evangelical church, the evangelical tradition. I think there's like among deconstructing voices, there are people who are landing in like more liturgical traditions, leaving the evangelical church. There, there's the ortho bros, which whatever, but uh, <laughs> I even... <laughs> Catholicism and Anglicanism having a a surge, then when we talk about the church, I think we're predominantly talking about the evangelical church, but there are these other veins where evangelical folks have moved to that would be good to be aware of too. So again, anytime we say something, that doesn't mean it's not happening at your local church. It just means that in myself, my travels who have talked to people involved in church on uh, what is that? Three continents and in, you know, six or seven states across different even or uh, denominational lines um, of different ages of different responsibilities within the church. I found a lot of common threads. And right so on. the question is, as we hear these stories, are we going to treat it as a mythology and and sort of learn lessons from it? Or are we going to just treat it as facts that kind of go on a stat sheet? Assume since we're the home team or the church, if people leave us, they're wrong and they're, you know, it's apostasy and they were never a part of us and we're right and, and they're they're wrong. But there's no perfect church, but how could they be hurt by us? And, you know, it's just I've sort of caught this theme of there's more than one way to tell these stories and we only ever tell the stories one way. Yeah. So the question yeah. is, is that propaganda is the fact that we tell the same story the same way over and over and over leading us to a wrong conclusion. Hmm. And if it's not, even if the story makes sense that way, 
is there a different way to tell the story that also makes sense? Are you talking in like who's telling the story, I guess? That's what we're going to find out, right? So it's there's two sides to every story, at least, if not several more. Yeah. And so we often tell the story where the one in authority is right in the church. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's what's leading to deconstruction, too, is like not far from the same spirit that led to the American Revolution. Like you're realizing that authority has proven untrustworthy. And we've (laughs) so you trace it that far back. Our country is kind of rooted in distrust of institutions and institutional authority. And it has its uh, modern day connections in like the rise of cult of personality and church. I mean, you could even tie in like Watergate and the like dominoes of scandals that have plagued government since then. It makes a lot of sense to question the stories that authority is trying to tell, especially when you know somebody who has a narrative that goes against it. Yeah. And we also have to be careful to not, you can't believe either side 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I mean, like if your idea, if you if you mean like, let's not become like partisans and cheerleaders for one particular side, for sure. Yes. Yeah. So we can't just say, hey, some churches have hurt someone. So that means churches have hurt everyone. It's like there there are it's a case by case basis. Right. I know some people that have left church because the church hurt them where it's kind of like, did they though? Or like, are you just kind of throwing a pity party for yourself? Well, And I think to the point of mistrust of institutions, like it, it makes sense to have a tone or a a note of mistrust, but you don't throw out the institution completely. Like if we said like, well, the president lied or the president was corrupt in these ways, do we no longer have presidents anymore? Uh, I think that would be an overreaction. So to the church, like, because there's been hurt, because there have been narcissistic pastors and whatnot, uh, do we get rid of pastors? Do we completely reinvent church? Maybe not. But I'm very much on the on the burn it down end of the spectrum. So you are. Yeah. So that those will make for good conversations. Right. And that's the space for non agreeing voices to be heard. I mean, right. if we agreed about everything we were talking about, this would be kind of stupid, I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. That's fair. Well, it still might be stupid. I don't know. <laughs> let's, not, let's not rule out anything too soon. Yeah, you're right. Okay. It's gonna, it's gonna Probability really... of this being stupid is still over 50% at this point. <laughs> yes. Yes. So actually, I'm you, I felt like last time we chatted about this, had a good take on the Bible is mythology Mm. sort of how that connects to what people need in their lives. So you want to give a little rundown on that. And I mean, I was actually talking about this with my kids last night too. So kind of fun. We not the Bible specifically, but like what is mythology? And I think I learned the Greek myths in eighth grade or seventh grade or whatever. And it was kind of taught with the tone of like a myth is a false story that is meant to illustrate how things work. Like it, it's a story that uses like spiritual, religious kinds of imagery or elements to help us understand the world and our place in it. 
And I think because we're taught the Greek myths and the Roman myths and the Egyptian myths and all these things that like, we know, like, yeah, like we don't worship the sun. We're not idiots. Um, (laughs) um, We've attached this. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, has anybody climbed Mount Olympus and like partied with the gods? Like that sounds fun. Anyway, we have attached this kind of meaning to myths as if like, anything mythological must not be true must be made up in order to like and it was a way to understand things before science existed kind of like i the main illustration i remember is like the greeks believed that zeus threw lightning bolts down and that's how they understood that thunderstorms happened but now that we have science we know that it works this way and that is an oversimplification of mythology i think if you uh, the part of the definition of mythology that's true is that they are stories that help us understand who we are and our place in the world and the fact is we need those even if science can explain how things happen science does not answer Who are we and what is our place in the world? And we can identify our need for stories, even in a scientific oriented culture. Like why did the Avengers movies make billions of dollars? It's because it was almost of a mythological caliber that we see the world in a sense of having this war between good and evil. And we need heroes who can stand up and defeat the evil and save us the invisible mass from its impact. Our movies and our TV shows have become our mythology and they tell us who we are, but we need something deeper than that. And I think that's where the Bible becomes a mythology that speaks to us and that we still need The problem is when we approach it either like in that kind of mythological spectrum of the seventh and eighth grade simplicity, if we look at Genesis as either this must be historical fact or it must be scientifically disproven, like that's putting it in on the wrong spectrum entirely. Like what it is there for is not to instruct us on our historical origins but to give us an understanding of who we are and what is our place in the world. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it's a response to the myths of the day, right? Early on. Yeah. So I, I think it's not bad to look at the Bible that way and to like to understand it historically is a different kind of value. And that is a different spectrum. But to understand it mythologically, I think that gives us a lot of wisdom and insight into um, what does it mean to be human? Yeah. And so one of my favorite breakdowns of this, I think, is the story of Jonah, where if you if you read it, it's a comedy, like in cultural context, it's it's sort of hilarious. Like at the end, even the even the cows are putting sackcloth on. Right. Like you're never putting (laughs) sackcloth on your cows to mourn. And, you know, the only other place in the Bible Jonah's mentioned is that he was a bad prophet to one of the kings. So in some ways, it's like, did Jonah happen? It doesn't matter if Jonah was real there. In a lot of ways, there's no proof that 
Jonah went to Nineveh and did these things. But is what it's talking about still true even if he didn't do them? 100%. God is still abounding in loving kindness. If you cling to worthless idols, you will forfeit the grace that could be yours. Do we often not do the things that God asks us? Yes. Is God still merciful and faithful that he can go way beyond what we even imagined? Yes. Do we often thumb our nose at God's God when he turns out to be who he is, even though we don't like it? Yes. Like there are core elements in that story that ring super true, even if they're not factually true. And yeah. so. Well, I'd, I'd clarify, I think a little bit, does it matter if it actually happened? Yeah. But how much does it matter? Not as much as what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so we got like, into I don't want to weird... just. We got into a weird argument after the Sola Scriptura portion of theology, where if any if any line in the Bible was not true, then the whole thing was false. Yeah. And it put us into this super weird avenue where it's like, did the events of the Bible happen? I believe they did. Did all of the events in the Bible happen? No, there's some symbolism in there. And instead of leaning towards if everything didn't, everything had to happen exactly as it says, or none of it happened that's a line we painted ourselves into a box with that we should have avoided. And mm-hmm. and that's sort of the line of thought I'm going to bring up a lot is we go through this whole process is what do we have now in our thought structures that shouldn't have been there in the first place. We would never pick them if we didn't know they were there and yeah. how much of that affects how we view church, how we view God and all those other things. Yeah. And I think, I mean, like, I don't know, like everything feels like a pendulum. Like on some days, maybe I'd be inclined to agree with you more strongly. Right now, I'm thinking like one of the things that's um, unique and important about Christianity, Judaism, um, is that it marks moments of God interacting with humanity in a historically measurable way that these are not ju- what is different in this way from in biblical mythology versus Greek or Egyptian mythology. It's like those, those things are just stories. People told them and they didn't have this actual historical element of God stepping into, I mean, like you could say like, Oh, Zeus taking the form of a swan. Well, like, that's not historically measurable. That's just a neat story. But like God etching some markings on tablets to pass down the Mosaic law, the resurrection of Jesus. Like these are moments where like is something that we need to hold to that. We're just not, we're not just believing things that for all we know could have been made up but we're believing things that have a real world, tangible impact, measurability, something. Um, So that then when we get to a story like Jonah, it means something, not just because it's a story, but because it did happen. And at a certain point, like with Jonah, like we don't know for sure that that happened. Like I can't. Right. Scholars are a little split on it, right? Like, and I'm, yeah, I'm sort of, so my point is I appreciate you leveling it out. 
my point is not so much that these things didn't happen. It's that like with our sola scriptura vein, it's if there's a word wrong in the Bible, all of it's false. Yes. We what are we focused to be on? able to? Yeah. We need to hold both of these things in tension and say, you know, what, what part of these matter and what part of them are speaking about God. Yeah. And can, can one thing be true and another thing be true at the same time? Yes. There is a lot of overlap, but we have put so much of our thought and effort into becoming uh, denominations that believe certain things and have schismed over time that very specific thought is the only way to look at this. And if you have a different thought, you're a heretic in our mind. Yeah, totally. And it's that narrow, the narrowness of interpretation um, that kind of constricts the life out of these stories in some ways. Yep. It is an eternal God, the beginning and the end, the word that was in the beginning. And yet, if you don't look at him exactly this way, you're wrong. It's like, and you know, I mean, like, I don't know a ton of this history, but I really think like that thinking started getting narrow with the Reformation and that there were um, monks, maybe it was a scholastic thing even. Um, But yeah, yeah, here's how much I know about Christian history. I've read some, but apparently not enough that like some of these earlier thinkers recognized the layers of meaning inherent in biblical stories and they were willing to say like historically it happened that means one thing um also the story is like this that means another thing um and because the story references this thing that means another thing and they found more layers than that i'm sure too but right to what you're saying about like something can be true and something else can be true that's been a an approach to scripture for a while that i think narrow evangelical thinking has kind of written off and yes i think and we can get it we'll get into carl Jung's thought about the after the reformation everyone will become their own church eventually um and what that means for stuff is you know we go along here and we'll probably reference it a bunch but the reformation i always like asking people about that sort of think about these things because and everyone's mind it was the best thing that's happened for christianity in such a long time that's not a catholic right like this is what reconnected us with god this is what what did all these things and in my mind all it did was answer a question that shouldn't have been asked in the first place and i think it answered it poorly where Hmm. it did not reposition god in front of us it positioned us in front of god differently so the but the question is are we are we dealing with a copy of the living god under the protestant reformation or are we dealing with the living god and I, how was I, that the question that they were asking uh well so the question was with indulgences right like how do we how do we find favor with god well we pay the church money the protestant reformation said no no Grace is a free gift we just get from God, right? Yeah. But it it did not fix our worth problem, right? And, and this may be different in the actual context of the Reformation and stuff, but what it has turned into 
is us just being sinners saved by grace and sinner is our our permanent uh call it identity right and it, yeah i'm fine it, it still turns god into an angry god in a lot of ways that just doesn't punish us because he's gracious on his other side but it, it does not denote value to who we are nor does it does it keep god as uh again i'm trying to figure out how how much of a rabbit hole we want to go down here um <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't put god in a good light it, i mean it reminds me of how like i i was taught in evangelism training kinds of things people need to know that they're in trouble before they will know that they need a savior like they need to know that they're sinners yes. first yep huh really yeah i think what do they need to know i think they need to know they're god's children like i think they need to know that god values them and has been chasing after them this whole time and and so one of the and i mean i think people need to know different things <laughs> but yeah like yes right as far as does everyone need to know the that... same thing right <laughs> yeah um, but i think our one of the themes i'm going to keep bringing up is i think our gospel is broken and i I think that's part of why deconstruction is happening is because it's become so obvious that we are no longer talking about God. When we share the gospel, we're, we're looking for numbers. We're looking for, for ways to show that we have power. We're looking for, you know, we are, well, go ahead. One of the, one of the ways I think we know that our gospel is broken is that we, we don't know how to make, disciples we can make converts fairly effectively but like i said in my introduction what does it mean to follow jesus like i yeah. think that's a question that a lot of new converts don't get a lot of resources for from their leaders or churches or small groups like to yeah. be fair like there are there are definitely some and even just being able to read the bible can help um but I, I think that that's a place that is not maybe as it's not inherent to our gospel necessarily. Yeah. Um, I got two thoughts here, so I'll just go for one of them. Um, <laughs> so we, we both talked about the movie vengeance, uh, the BJ Novak film, um, yeah. and try to do this with as few spoilers as possible. Um, but it comes down to where someone is talking about, society in today's age in how it doesn't even matter if someone gets caught because someone will have a take and and someone else will have another take and we don't care about what actually happened we care about the copy that it has turned into and if the people around us agree or if they they disagree and if we disagree yeah. with them we have to move somewhere else and we have to bring that copy of what we think happened with us and so I, I view a lot of how we view the gospel and how we view the church as, no, we're not disciples of Jesus. We may be disciples of Calvin or Luther or whoever, but we are, we are not looking at the living God. We are either looking at the copy of his words in the Bible, where that's the only way God can speak to us. We are, you know, sort of looking at, what is the lens this person has looked at God through and what have they given us? It's sort of uh we are the Israelites at the bottom of the mountain that Moses has gone up. 
Mm-hmm. And God has invited every single one of us to go up. And instead we go, no, no, Moses can go. But while he's gone, let's make a bowl out of gold so we can have something that we can we can recognize and have a copy of. And it's super obvious that it was made by our own hands, but that's comforting because then we can recognize it. Hmm. And I think we have we have so fully removed the fact that we are made in the image of God from ourselves by how we talk about ourselves, how we denote God dealing with us, all these sorts of things that we don't even see. a. I, uh, I think we're supposed to have the fingerprints of God on us. And we are so far removed from that fact that when we look at God, we don't even see him in us, if that makes sense. Sure. I mean, I think like it's a it's a step to go from we're looking at a copy to we are idolaters. Um, I do agree with you that like we are missing our con- the connection with the living God that we are encouraged to have. Um and we are mediating that through pastors and books and traditions. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're like making a golden calf. I, yeah. So I think the thing I've been way more willing to do of late is to just, what if we are? <laughs> well, so the, for so long the conversation has been well we that can't be the case that option isn't true so let's not even think about it but if it's on the table and the option makes sense we we need to seriously consider if it's true and we can walk through it and talk about it and it cannot be true at the end but we can't assume that it's not true in the beginning and i think that's a lot of where we've gotten to is we have we have limited the options of where we can go in a conversation in the beginning. And so then it's just picking different ideas that kind of fit, but, but we already were pushed down bad paths to begin with. Okay. I mean, like it sort of sounds like what, what are our potential hypotheses um, when we look at this problem and like there's something that's that's fair about that but i almost wonder if like i don't know i guess i've always been skeptical of the hypothesis in general like why would i approach something with an assumed conclusion in mind or even like but i suppose in science like it's a hypothesis you want to test and in this case like if that if we want to test that that's one thing well, and, and we here's, could here's why i think it's a valid hypothesis because it's in the bible in the very place that we're supposed to view ourselves you know the israelites are our mirror for how they interact with god sure and, and so, then that could be it could be a story worth digging into because i think there's not a, a lot like direct on the page about like why did they do that what did they expect would happen when they did that like right um, there, there's a lot to think about, like in that story that would be worth digging into for sure. Well, and I think it's just, it's as simple as, Hey, when God asks us to come near, do we come near always? No. Hey, but do we choose things remember. that aren't God at times? Yeah. I, I thought they were told not to go on the mountain. Well, cause they, yeah, they, 
they were like, it was, didn't God say, like, you set foot on this mountain, you die? <laughs> yeah, because they messed it up. Well, but I don't remember there being an invitation. Like, at one point, they could have gone up. Uh, let's dig into it later, but... <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, because, again, we, we're very limited on time when we talk, so we're not going to get into rabbit trails that... Um, well, the rabbit trails are fun. They are. <laughs> and that's basically... We'll we should just we'll call this rabbit, rabbit trails... trails. More rabbit trails in the future, maybe. Yes, when we know more. But I think it's okay, even if they didn't get invited to go up, because again, our one of our foundations of this podcast is we're willing to be wrong. <laughs> even yeah. if they yeah. weren't invited to go up, they did not eagerly await the word of God. Yeah. I mean, so, and that's worth a lot, a lot to dig into in that story. Like something went askew. And was it was it a lack of faith? Was it a misdirected faith? Um, was it outright rejection? Um, which I feel like is how it's phrased a lot. Like the period of the wilderness is one of like rebellion. Um, but it is also, I mean, like you've got different characters reacting differently. Like Aaron seems to kind of give in to this impulse. It didn't originate with him. So like, yeah, a lot going on. Yeah. So I think we just need to be willing to, to understand that people are playing different roles. And just because they hold a position doesn't mean that they're doing what they should. Right. So go back to the story of Jonah, where he was a prophet of God. He had literally heard from God. And his response was to not do it. Was to do something else. Pretty rad. Yeah. But so we we are always in a position where we we put pastors on a pedestal and we know that they're hearing from God. And, and so they have a direction over our life and, and all these other things where, okay, maybe the pastor in your life is actually doing that. But we cannot assume that they are because they hold the title. Yeah. And so as I've looked into more of church history and modern culture and where things have come from, we have often let people through the gates that did not belong and believed that they had heard from God because of their position or because we liked what they said or it made life easier or, you know, for any number of things. And we kicked off the possibility of the hypothesis that could have told the story the different way. And so now we are left protecting things because we've held them for 50 years, 20 years, 10 years, 40 years, hundred, you know, some of it's 2000 years. And my, my point is if the Pharisees in the days of Jesus didn't get it right, they had the teachers of the teachings of Moses. And that was like 2000 ish years. Well, we have the teachings of Jesus, but it's been 2,000-ish years. Mm -hmm. How were the super religious treated in the day of Jesus? Not well by him. Is it possible that we have the same thing going on? That we have yeah, been I mean, so concerned with creating our rules and structures and all these things for how we view God that we are now a stiff-necked people and we can only see it one way? Well, now I think you're being generous. Like, duh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I 
So, but I, I, but I think those two, those Israelites at the foot of the mountain and those two things are super connected. Right. And that's where the Bible is mythology goes is we need to stop looking at it as the fact of the Israelites were at the bottom of the mountain. Moses went up. Moses came down, was super angry. Moses heard from God. Like we are really good at reciting the facts and looking at these people as idiots. And we sort of view the Bible as this is who God is. This is who people are. How awful are people? How good is God? But it, it, it we don't look at it as the myth of what does the story actually mean? How could, how should we respond now that we know these things? And I mean, like to use, to build on those examples, we're inclined to identify with the good guys. So like as much as we draw lessons from the Israelites, we don't identify with them and we draw lessons from the Pharisees, but we don't identify with them. We identify with Peter who is a screw up, but turns out great in the end. Um, Or even Moses who like denies the call of God, but is faithful throughout like and murdered someone David. what sorry and moses murdered someone yeah so but why don't we identify with the people that we truly are most like which is i think the israelites and the pharisees uh or even i just think normal like whatever dudes who I, i'm thinking now jesus's time like not the pharisees not the disciples but just the folks hanging out in the market. Like what sure, were the rich all man asking win- what he has to do to be saved? Um, no, I'm, I'm thinking like the people who aren't even characters in the story, like oh, Jesus okay. flipped over the tables in the temple. A bunch of people are standing around watching. That's me. And how am I reacting to this guy? Right. Um, yeah. Well, you might also be the one making money off of the work of God, you know, like, right. And that's the thing is we're, we're so unwilling. And this is sort of that attitude I talked about before, where it's like, if they leave us there, it's apostasy, you know, we're right. Everything's going well. And it's just like, yet we want so badly for everyone to leave the Pharisees and to come, you know, kneel at the cross with Jesus. And it's like, if we don't realize the possibility is we are those Pharisees, we are the Israelites that are, you know, worshiping idols in other places. We will never have an accurate view of ourselves from what God says, because guess what? That is what God says about us. And that's why yeah. they're there. It's not to show us how dumb a group of people were. It was to show us what we are like and how he responds to us. Hmm. You know, what's interesting. I don't know. I mean, my church experience is fairly limited at the church I went to for 12 years. Like they never really preached through books of the Bible, but even still, it seems rare for pastors to preach through Galatians. Um, Maybe you can like, I don't know if you've experienced that too, but like, that seems to be like the book that is really, really clear. Like, but he's this, you all, are getting a little too hot and heavy on this religion thing. Like cut out the circumcision garbage. Like all that really matters here is that Jesus died for you and for them. And we're free. 
right. and so maybe like that's just not preached on a lot because it's not comfortable for the people in charge. I don't know. Or maybe I'm wrong and plenty of people are preaching on it and then praise God. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've heard people preach on it, but it's, um, it's not as straightforward as what you just laid out, which I feel like the book is pretty straightforward, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we got some stuff to say. I'm going to say it. Um, mm. But I think mostly it's just because we don't, we have fractured so much of the light beam of God into different places that we can't even look at it as a whole anymore. And I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but like even within Galatians where it's pretty straightforward, you know, we have to figure out, well, what does circumcision really mean in today's age? What would it be? And it's just like everything you've done, look around you. Like you are, (laughs) you are covered in circumcisable things. And yet, uh, you know, I, cause I think we look at the Bible mainly as an evangelical framework. Uh, We look at it as business principles on what to follow and we don't look at it as um guiding principles for our life yeah um well yeah even if we do that <laughs> i mean like i sure. i i brace against the the bible as a roadmap to life kind of thinking um read proverbs never never i refuse <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, listen where reason got us in the enlightenment. Now you want me to use wisdom as my guiding force? I mean, come on. Well, I mean, to the to the idea that leaders can misappropriate the word if if that's the the way to describe it. Um I've heard proverbs preached from for more than half of my like church attending life. Mm-hmm. And it puts such an overemphasis on live your life wisely to have the good life um, that I can't read it again because, I mean, it it misses the point that like the good life is not how you live. Like those things are supplemental. The good life is the spirit. Like, and uh, Galatians again, the good life is the fruits of the spirit. Those are the things that God gives when he dwells within you. And then if you want to be wise, great. Like there's nothing wrong with being wise, but there's something wrong with thinking that being wise is really all you need. Yeah. Well, and we've talked about before, like, do you even know what peace is? Like, do you know what yeah. joy is? Like, how many of these things are you experiencing on a on a normal day to day basis? Well, yeah. Oh, I don't know, man. Let's listen. <laughs> Patience got kind of shoved into me at some point. Like, yeah. <laughs> hope she was okay. But <laughs> but you know, it's just like we don't even understand what any of those things are, and they're the cornerstone. Yeah. Like Jesus's yoke is supposed to be light and easy to carry. And the number of people I know in churches that are burnt out and bitter and tired and all these things, it's sort of the reason why I'm like, well, maybe we got to burn it down. Because if it doesn't look anything like what it's supposed to, we have been given 
parameters and and ways to tell what the fruit is sure and that's and i think key thing to what you're saying if it doesn't look anything like what it's supposed to and i think it looks something like what it's supposed to in the way that a minotaur looks like a bull like <laughs> it is not okay so the it's thing it's like the fig tree that didn't bear fruit right like no no because that's a that's that's leaning into your burn it down point (laughs) oh yeah i can't use evidence that'd be bad (laughs) no No, but like we we know things by the fruit and if there's no good fruit then and again maybe in specific instances there's good fruit and then let's leave those alone perfect fine i have no problem with that but as a general concept are we willing to do the very things that jesus did The temple got torn down. Not two bricks were left on top of each other. That was supposed to be the place of God. How could we let that happen? Because it wasn't actually what it was supposed to be anymore. Well, but it wasn't a judgment on the temple exclusively. Again, this is multiple things true at the same time. It Mm -hmm. was also, like, at that point, it was obsolete. Like, at that point, we were the temple. Yeah, um, but we're not the temple anymore. That's not true. <laughs> no, no, we don't act. Okay, we are the temple, but we don't act like it. But we're bad at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that's that's the thing is, are we getting in put in contact with a copy or are we getting put in contact with the real thing? And Well, and so, and, but to your point of like, no fruit, like, and maybe this is just going to be part of our dialogue always. Um and it should be because I, I like the balancing. Sure. I don't think there's no fruit. I think we should identify where fruit is lacking that it shouldn't be lacking and fix that. But if you are seeing no fruit, I mean, like Mars Hill is a great example. Like their story is one of like bad fruit and good fruit yep. on the same tree. What and I mean, like Jesus is even saying, like you, it's if Jesus says a good tree can't produce bad fruit, a bad tree can't produce good fruit, then maybe I'm wrong in saying that there were two different trees. There's a Mark Driscoll tree at Mars Hill, and there's a Jesus tree at Mars Hill. And then the question is, where is the Jesus tree, and how are we letting him graft us into it? And I think the important thing here is, while I say burn it down, I I don't even know that that's the right answer. I just want to be able to have it on the table as an answer. Yeah. Right. I mean, you love fire. I don't blame you. Well, and and what what are we purified by? Fire. What? Like, God, yeah, exactly. God does not play around with things. And I think that's... We have a we have sort of this view of God as a gentle God who you know holds sheep and lambs and and sort of has his arms around everyone and it's like yes but also he carries a sword there is going to come a day when he will use it there is going to come a day where people come to him and say why am I getting cast into the fire look at all the things I've done for you and he will say I away from me I never knew you. Like those are the stakes we're dealing with. And I'm very fed up with the fact that no one is willing to deal with them in those terms. Well, I think people are, but they're never willing to consider themselves as being somebody like I hear that. And 
part of me trembles because I'm like, I, I could, but for the grace of God, be on that side. Um, so it makes me want the grace of God and what like Paul says something about like pressing on to make it your own or whatever. There's another verse I was thinking of. Um, But like, do we take our assurance too much for granted? And um, are there problems to that? Uh, Yeah, that's also a, you know, another weird thing is the arguments we have within denominations and all these other things. And, you know, can you lose your salvation? No, of course you can't. Yes, absolutely. You can, you know, in some ways we get so caught up in the theology of it all and having the right answer that we miss what is important, which is there are going to be some people that think they're in the club that aren't. How do we live our lives in such a way that those people who think they're in the club have to be in the club to stick around. Like right now, our, our entrance to the gospel is pray this prayer and you're good. Yeah. Well, the entry barrier in the Bible is declare Jesus is Lord. That's, that's a much different thing than asking him to be your savior. One just places you back in the garden where you can eat the fruit over and over and over and over again. The other one says, no, no, hey, you know, serpent, you know how you're saying, if I eat this fruit, I'll know good and wrong? I don't need to know the difference between right and wrong. God is going to tell me what's right. I'm going to listen to him. He's my Lord. The The barrier for entry there is so different that it's... it's it, it is, but I wonder if even that is... I mean, here we're maybe treading into theological debate territory that we don't need to, but yeah, um, five minutes. <laughs> uh, how, like, at what point were the disciples saved? At what point were Adam and Eve saved? Um, at what point was David saved? Um, I think these questions, like, it, it's extremely hard to answer from a point of view of narrow evangelical theology. Um, yes. And all, I mean, like what I just come back to is faith. Like at some point faith overwhelmed the rest and did they understand it completely correctly? Like, do, and so then do we need to understand it completely? Do we need to, we need to have our faith in the right thing, but do we need to be able to articulate what that right thing is the moment that we put our faith in it? Um, well, I mean, in Hebrews, you have the hall of faith, right? And I mean, Abraham's in it and he was a Bobo, right? It's like by faith, he believed that God would do this thing. And then he slept with a slave. Like, <laughs> you know he got it right eventually but like so is he disqualified well of course not he he was the father of all nations right like he he got it right eventually the the faith slipping is not the important part it's what is the faith founded in and what are you what are you willing to give up at all costs for it yeah complex 
and that just based on time might be a good place to end it. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So we're just going to keep wading our way through these things. Uh, some of it's not going to make sense. Some of it's going to be figured out eventually, but, uh, our, our end goal here is to find the right thing on the other end, I think would be the way to say it. So I'm excited yeah. to see like that excited to see what happens here, man. It's uh, it's going to be a good journey. It better be, or we'll quit. <laughs> then we quit. What's the worst that happened? At least we tried. <laughs> It'll be good. All right. Take it easy. Talk to you, you soon. Too. Cheers. Yep. evening i am coming to you per the request of my friend mr joel meyer to discuss the concept of telos and i think it's really easy to mistake this as some sort of philosophical abstract look at us we want to be smart people and talk about fun Greek words like telos. But really, what telos is coming down to is direction. And so I think this concept is not merely an intellectual exercise, but it is core to the pursuit of what is true, how we live our lives according to that, and what we are directed towards, whether we are wittingly or unwittingly moving in a certain direction towards a certain someone, right? And when when we look at the word telos itself, we can actually connect that to something we might be a little bit more familiar with, and that is the telescope. And the telescope is a perfect tool to look at when we're trying to consider and think through what telos is getting at. And it's this idea of being able to look at something really, really, really far off into the future. And in order to do that, you you have to narrow your scope of view and you have to point it at something. You have to be directed towards something. Now, where the concept of telos is interesting is when it applies to us as people. And right, the, the original idea, the, the Aristotelian idea, is that we do end up having a narrow scope or focus directed towards something, some sort of ends. Where it gets tricky is where we think we are moving towards versus where we are actually moving towards and whether or not our actions align with what we claim our telos to be or whether our actions align with some other sort of direction now i am not i'm not an expert this is not some field of study i don't have some phd in this or anything this is just something that i consider to be important something that needs to be thought about because it affects the entirety of your life it affects your day-to-day decisions because all of it can be measured within that framework that you have created for yourself and 
in the context of the conversation that this is being recorded for around around church and what church looks like or should look like, um, I think we can narrow telos down to two factors. There is a telos that is inward, and there is a telos that is outward. Now that seems really overly simplified and silly and kind of weird at first, but what I'm meaning by that is the inward telos is self-directed. It is returning back to the myth, the concept within Genesis, the, the core element of the story there, which is the idea of humans, humanity, usurping a power that is not theirs. Um, and we do that on a day-to-day basis. We do that on a regular basis. And instead of entering into a good created order and directing ourselves towards a community with God and with others and with the world around us, we end up making decisions based solely on my internal leanings, uh, my internal wants, my internal needs. And, and this is an inward-directed telos. Um, an outward-directed telos does not necessarily need to go towards God, but I think an outward-directed telos is necessary to have one that gets there. Um, when, when we're s- still kind of within this same framework, I really like the C.S. Lewis uh, dualism that he presents which states that there are going to be two types of people at the end of all things. There are going to be those who say to God, your will be done. And there will be those to whom God says, your will be done. And at the end of the day, that, that's telos, right? This is, we, we have a choice in terms of where we direct all of our being. And when it comes to church we are talking about where a community or where, where I think today, by today's standards of the term church and organization, where that is directed. And that becomes really tricky and really messy really quickly. But I think part of, part of the goal of me giving this little spiel here is to drive home the point of or ask the question of, I guess, not not necessarily drive home a point, but ask the question of, do our churches have an inward or an outward telos? What measuring sticks are we putting in place to say, you know what, this is actually Christ-centered, and this is the direction that we need to move towards? Um. I think one of the biggest issues around Telos right now is we know we know the language game, and so we can manipulate things to attempt to communicate that we are actually aligned with what we think we're supposed to be aligned with, rather than honestly aligned with what we want to be aligned with. Um, and and a good example of that actually came from. Uh, an article that I was sent to me from a secular movie review. And 
I'm not going to get into all the weeds of the details of that, but but essentially it came down to this. There's a, a director who had directed darker comedies and now has just trended towards darker. And part of that is he has a worldview that tends more towards nihilism. Um, he does not believe that there is a grounded hope within reality. And so what was interesting were, were the attempts to criticize this approach on moral grounds, but there was no grounding for those morals because there was no direction towards a moral giver. So the, the critiques really fell flat and they felt odd and they felt forced because it just kept coming back to, well, we don't have a, a good technical reason to critique his films. They just make us feel bad and uncomfortable and we don't like that. And what I was, I was in a conversation about this review with a friend of mine and he was pointing out how, you know, they're, they're right, but they don't have much ground to stand on because they're not really, at the end of things, they're not really promoting anything different. They're just in pursuit of, well, yeah, I think that's all true, but I just want to feel good. I also want the laughs with, with the truth. Um, but there aren't always laughs with the truth when we subscribe to a certain telos. And what, what I found, I guess, what I find refreshing about the director mentioned is that there's at least an honest conversation with him. He at least understands openly and honestly where his system of beliefs is moving towards. And that's something that you can actually enter into. And so this ended up becoming the discussion my friend and I had around that article and around the movie is how do you engage with the dishonest crowd? Those who don't truly understand their telos, but they have inherited some of the, um, some of the language to communicate a different movement or a different direction. Uh, and then we get into kind of, kind of some sophistry, really some just language games and we use and construct language rather than actual telos, actual direction, actual pointing and moving towards something real and something tangible. And instead we get caught up kind of in the, in the stream towards that end. We get caught up in, in all the means, all the ways of getting us there. And we focus on those things instead and we, we deny that there is something greater that we are working towards. This becomes a real, real problem, um, especially within the church context, because the moment we start denying that there is something greater, the moment we start minimizing or moving towards materialism or moving towards something that is less than, well, at that point in time, now our new God is actually us. Our new God is our theology. Our new God is our construct of what telos ought to be. And so part of why I think this is an important concept to work through, wrestle with, 
understand is we can't do anything about it until we honestly understand where I'm aimed, where I'm pointed at. And we can't truly understand, okay, what are the consequences of being pointed in that direction? What actually ends up taking place? What act- who actually might be in the line of fire because I am moving in that direction? And so I think these are important questions to wrestle through and wrestle with when we are talking about church direction, church aim, and church telos. Mm-hmm.